Well, good evening to you all. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the Practice of Love. And the subtitle is We Say We Love, But Do We Practice It? And what would be very nice and encouraging if during the talk you did actually practice it and directed it towards me. <laughs> All right. Now, how important is love? At the universal level, the whole creation manifests through love, is sustained and nourished by love, and ultimately it will merge into love. So love is the source, the means, and the sustenance behind the entire creation. Man is part of creation, and so love is also the dominant force in his or her life. It is the motivation behind all human activity. There is, in fact, only one emotion, that is love. And it can either be pure love or impure love. And depending on the level of impurity, we get the whole range of human emotions such as irritation, anger, jealousy, envy, hatred, all these things. For example, the ultimate cause of hostility is also love because hostility arises when love is hindered. Now, everybody has pure love within their nature and all are striving to express this in the creation. However, its manifestation is determined by the purity of the subtle or mental world of man because it passes through this mental world in order to express itself. If the subtle world is pure, then the love flows effortlessly, fully, and is actually experienced as love. But depending on the degree of impurity, to love then requires effort. It's hard work. It is restricted and it is experienced as attachment to or possession of others. Those who live in love achieve harmony with nature and their fellow beings and are attracted to find their way back to God. Love delivers the heart. It is the panacea for all suffering, freeing it from misery, jealousy, grief, fear, worry, and all these things. We are educated to value wealth and glory above all things and to think only of getting as much of them as we can. And we ought to be educated to place love above all things and to concentrate all our powers to learn how to love. It is the most important work for man to love all mankind. Without love, life is not worth living, even if surrounded by all the goodies that the creation can offer. Satisfaction cannot be found without the capacity to experience loving one's neighbor as oneself. And also love is the means to reunion with God, not in the future, but now, right now, in the experience of love now. To truly love is to be in heaven, on earth, 
now. Some say they would like to see God. Well, God is not hiding. If we accept the definition of God, he is everywhere, so he's in front of us. It is we who are hiding. But only with love in our hearts can we see him. With selfishness or ignorance we are blind, for it is love that allows us to see things as they really are. If we are unfit, then to become fit again requires considerable effort. So given our state, love is not a sentiment which can be easily indulged in by anyone, but takes maturity of being. Just like dieting or exercising, it takes great strength and humility and courage and faith and discipline to love. Under ignorance, we have abandoned love, or perhaps more correctly, it has abandoned us. And if we do not use something in nature, then nature takes it away from us. So if I was to strap one of my arms behind my back and not use it, then the body will withdraw all the strength and vitality from that arm until it becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. And if I start to use it again, then all the strength is restored to that arm. So use love, practice love, and love is restored to us in all its glory. So the fundamental premise of the talk this evening is that love is the motive force behind the entire creation, that we all have pure love in our hearts, and that includes everyone we hate, in case we forget, that many of us have become unfit, unfit to truly love, and that with the practice of love, love will be restored to our hearts and lives. So, despite the fact that we all hope to love and to love fully, most of mankind fails. And the reason for our failure is not that there is nobody out there to love, but simply we do not practice it. So, what is true love? And the world has forgotten the real meaning of the word love. Very few now understand it. And without this understanding of what love is, how can we possibly know it in its fullest grandeur? And most of what is said in this section of the talk is based on the words of the Shankaracharya, who is the man that the school put all its questions to. And when asked about love, this is what he said. These are his words in essence. Firstly, love and knowledge are interrelated. We do not ordinarily think that knowledge has anything to do with love. However, without knowledge, love is not expansive. And without love, knowledge is not allowed to play its full part. Initially, we experience love in the family. And if it is not checked, then it must expand until it includes the entire creation. This expansion of love from family to the universe is totally natural. That is, it will happen naturally unless we block it in some way. 
destiny of every human being is to love the entire universe. However, we block it in some way. And the blockage is due to ignorance. So for love to be full, the extent and truth of knowledge is essential. Therefore, we're going to outline characteristics of true love so that our knowledge of it might increase. So one characteristic of true love is constancy. And this is the test of love, that it is constant. There is no such thing as I do not love him or her anymore. If the statement is true, in the sense that the person is not loved now, it simply means they were never truly loved. As Shakespeare said, Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark. And this constancy of love leads to constancy of speech, feeling and action. And these reveal the truth or untruth of our love. And we might recognize the inconsistency that arises either in ourselves or in others with regard to words spoken, feelings felt, and actions actually undertaken. The second characteristic of true love is that it brings a stillness to the being of the person. So where there is true love, the person has a stillness about them. The heart is at rest, for the search is over. And my eldest daughter managed to declare her love for a few men during the years that she was dating. But one day she came to me and she told me that there was now another man and that she loved him. And I knew that this was the man she was going to marry because her eyes were different. The difference in her eyes was there was no hunger anymore in her eyes. The search for her was over. She was at rest. So always look into their eyes. <laughs> the third characteristic of true love is that it is all-seeing. As was said a few minutes ago, love is not blind, but it is all-seeing. It sees the world of appearance, and it sees the underlying substance, the unchanging, pure, and perfect self that lives in all creatures. So it sees the all, the transient and the permanent, and the transient is seen in the light of the permanent, and this makes Everything perfect. The third characteristic of true love is acceptance. The fundamental principle of love is that it accepts unreservedly the one in front as complete or perfect. So love is unconditional. It is not that we love this or that about the person. If it is true love, it is all of them that is loved. 
So irrespective of something being liked or disliked in ordinary life, love allows us to see beauty or perfection everywhere. And this is why for every mother or father, the child is beautiful. Imagine that. There are some people who think you are beautiful. But it is nothing to do with your looks, for which you can be extremely grateful. <laughs> it is to do with the fact that they have love in their hearts. The next characteristic is that in truth, what we love is the self in the person. The experience of seeing the self in the other is the act of love. So we do not love others, but love the self in others. We are, in fact, loving ourselves in all. And for one who sees in this way, the whole creation is a family. So he or she treats everyone in the world with love and affection. And with love, he wishes to impart bliss to everybody. And this is what makes love so wonderful. Because anyone with love in his heart wants to see everyone in bliss, everyone healthy, and everyone availing freedom. The next characteristic of true love is a word that most people hate these days, but I shall have to say it. It is the word surrender. The essential feature of love is sacrifice or sharing with the world. All relationship involves surrender. Now, what is it that is surrendered when there is relationship? It is all our limits that which makes us less than fully kind and compassionate and caring. With love in our hearts, we share ourselves with the world. So love is very generous. When we have love in our hearts, we are very generous to others. So if there is love flowing in your heart and somebody says, look, I need to go somewhere, can you drop me? And it's 15 miles out of your way. It's absolutely no problem to you. It is a delight to do it. The non-lover, however, wants to hold on to everything for his private use. And so he becomes a miser, becomes a miserable entity. And this is like when you know when you're very tired and there's no love in your heart, and you've had a hard day at work and you come home and your wife tells you that the light bulb is gone in the utility room. And you just can't believe it. It's such a walk between the family room and the utility room. And then you'll have to get the ladder out. And it could take at least four and a half minutes to do this job. But with love in your heart, 20 miles is nothing. In fact, you change all the light bulbs in the house, even if they're not gone. <laughs> the next characteristic of true love is service. True love has no motive. There's no concept of using another, benefiting from the other, or exploitation of the love. If these are present, love is displaced by attachment, greed, fear, and all these things. With love in their heart, 
there is all forgiveness to the one who is loved. The life becomes a service so that the loved one may be pleased. And it is for their pleasure that things are done without demanding anything at all in return. And a simple example of this is there are very few adults who like going to a circus. And those of them who do should not admit it in the company of other adults. But adults do go to circuses for their children's sake. It is an act of service to a child. You bring the child to the circus and their delight is your delight. The next characteristic of true love is no demands. With true love, there are no demands because all demands nullify love. Do you know when somebody demands something from you? Let's say they request it. Say, you know, could you get me a cup of tea or some of that? And then they say, get me a cup of tea. Well, for them to say it like that, they can have no love in their hearts and it certainly nullifies the love in your heart. You deliberately put in an extra spoon of sugar. You know, <laughs> and if this goes on for many years, it becomes arsenic. <laughs> now, when there are demands, the attention has left the happiness of the loved one and it is now considering use or benefit of that person for me. False love wants only for the achievement of certain results. And if the result is not forthcoming, then this love turns into bitterness and anger. So if love turns negative, it is impure love. So sometimes on the ending of a relationship, the injured party now hates the one who was loved previously. Well, that means it was, was or is impure love because pure love cannot produce hatred. True love is for the welfare of the other and in appreciation of truth. So what is best for the loved one is the only consideration, not whether I am gaining or losing from the relationship, and merely to love is the only request that pure love has to ask. Permission to love is all that is sought from the true lover. Pure love is all-pervading. It penetrates everywhere and it is unitary. It is unitary in that there is only one love. There is no such thing as my love, something which I have to give to others. It is actually not ours to give. If we are worthy, love finds us and expresses itself through us. Our job is simply not to block or distort its expression. It is also unitary in that it makes the two one. It brings people together by removing the differences between them, and they feel as if they are one. Now, love is the natural in-between, and we should simply stop putting anything between ourselves and others. 
And when we do stop this, we will find that love is naturally there always, irrespective of who the person is in front of us. So do not put fear or anger or jealousy or inferiority or superiority between ourselves and others. And love will be there of itself without any effort on our part. And we should examine and see what it is that we habitually put between ourselves and other people. Now, because love unifies, where there is love, there is no concept of subject and object. Love is not really something we feel for another. In truth, it is love for myself and not others. In fact, myself in others. Real love is by the self, for the self, in the self. So there is none else in it. If it is done to someone else, this is not love, it is something else. Now, love, or true love, is a verb. As it says, we may talk to talk, but do we walk to walk? Love is active because it involves giving, the giving of ourselves. And again, it is good to look at what of ourselves do we not give and why not? What is it that we are trying to protect? Now, all of us have tasted love in some form in our hearts, therefore we know a little about it. But we may not understand how to develop love, how to purify it, and expand it into universal love. And before we look at that, we're going to look at some common impediments to true love. And these are all based on ignorance. And the first impediment to true love is that we restrict our love to a few people. Now, love can be for myself, my family, my nation, humanity, or finally the universe. Only when our love is for the universe is it then pure love. And the degree that it is restricted to fewer and fewer people determines the degree of its impurity. And the implication of this is that we cannot have pure love for a few, but only for all. If we do not love all, we do not enjoy the fullness of love. If the love is for me, one takes care of me. If it is for family, one takes care of its members and perhaps the house that all live in. And we are benevolent to any one of them and we sacrifice our convenience for the convenience of others in the family. For those who fall outside this limit, we do not like to be as good to them as to members of our family. And if they are far removed from the family, we might even do a little injustice to them to get something for our own family. Now, those who have true love in their hearts love everybody. And if we do not love all, then we have limited the supply of love 
flowing through us. And this limit is caused by us restricting our love, which arises from failing to know everybody as our own self. The second impediment to true love is this fixation with being loved as opposed to being loving. For most people, the problem is seen as being loved instead of loving. Ordinarily, when people say that they do not have any love in their lives, they are saying that there are not any or enough people out there loving them. They are not saying that it is themselves who are not loving others. We often consider, are we being loved, particularly as much as we deserve? The real consideration is, however, are we loving? Are there any limits on our loving? And how might we grow in our loving? What should be examined is our capacity and practice of love. And because the attention is on, am I being loved? There naturally arises a doubt as to whether I am lovable. And commonly this results in the man giving over emphasis to success in career and women to their physical attractiveness in order for both to increase their lovability. Lovability in our culture has come to mean being popular and likable and having sex appeal. Nowadays, we have to be an attractive package before anyone buys us. Most of us then end up like Easter eggs with substantial and attractive packaging and very little inside. And because the attention tends to be on the packaging, the result is never-ending comparison with others. But true love never compares. For when we find someone to truly love, we find the ideal. And the ideal cannot be compared with. We would never insult the beloved with comparison. We would never say, my dear, you are the best to date. <laughs> the third common impediment to true love is looking for an object to love. As adults, we spend our lives looking for an object or objects to love. We do not consider our facility of loving. So we may think we do not have an object to love rather than we do not have a developed facility of loving. Now objects, whether they're people or all sorts of objects, objects are impossible to love because they are limited and subject to change. Love, however, is only of the limitless and the unchanging and that is why true love is constant. The product of all this looking for an object to love is a search for romantic love because romantic love always involves an object. This then results in ludicrous differentiations such as falling in love and being in love.
One lady I know told me her husband said to her that he loved her, but he was not in love with her, and then left her. <laughs> right? And how she did not shoot him, I do not know. Falling in love is meant to be exhilarating and exciting, i.e. we are crazy about each other. The intensity of the interaction is meant to prove the depth of the love. It starts off with, I could not live without him, and it ends up with, I could not live with him. <laughs> the miraculous early phase is like fireworks spectacular for a very short period of time. It is soon replaced by repetition and boredom. Now, true love does not burn itself out. It does not dull over time, but enriches itself with every act of loving. It is an investment that only increases its returns. The fourth common impediment to true love is conditionality. Most human love is conditional love. With our children, it can often be unconditional. So they can be physically unattractive, thick as two short planks, mean-hearted, and even commit horrendous crimes, but we still love them. Now, although the marriage vow is a vow of unconditional love. The reality is that it is conditional love which is practiced by the majority of people the majority of time. We have a platform of participation. And the platform of participation is the conditions we place on the relationship. The conditions under which we are willing to participate in the relationship. If they are not fulfilled, we are like the child who says, it's my ball, I'm not playing anymore, and then goes home. At its best, the platform of participation aims for a fair relationship, but no more than a fair relationship. So we split the shopping you pay for that, and I'll pay the ESB bill. You bring out the bins, and I'll bring the child to ballet on Saturday mornings. One person goes to philosophy on a Tuesday, and the other plays golf on a Sunday. Inevitably, the attention all the time must be on, am I getting my fair share? Once you slice the cake, you cannot stop yourself judging which is the bigger slice. <laughs> At its worst, this platform of participation leads to a meanness of spirit. Every action is costed out. It has a price. I will do this, but you must do that. One loves for the benefit that one gets in return. And the bigger the return the more one is willing to love. It is simply business. It is pervaded by selfishness and calculation. And one day we may find a better bargain and then we cancel 
the contract. Now, this conditionality with regard to love is foreign to young children. Imagine if a young child placed conditions on its love for us. How many of us would pass? For a child, there are no standards when it comes to those that it loves and we should be very grateful for that. We are loved by our children because there are no standards, not because we are particularly wonderful. The conditionality in our loving arises due to selfishness. The love is really for our sakes and not for the welfare or well-being of the other. And this may be arising because there is a desire to protect or there is some fear due to being hurt in the past. However, hurt can only arise if we demanded something in return for our love. And then it was not love, it was business, and we simply got a bad deal. True love is wonderful. Its only outcome is happiness. It cannot result in hurt. The hurt indicates the degree of impurity of the love, not the depth of the love. The greater the impurity of the love, the greater can the hurt be when there are difficulties or the relationship ends. And because love, or pure love, or true love cannot hurt, that is why there is no fear in true love. So we've looked at all these impediments on true love, and that means they produce impure love. Now, what are the effects of impure love? And we're just going to look at two. Firstly, to say, though, that pure love unites, and therefore impure love divides. And we're going to look at two effects of this division. The first is insecurity. Now, I was asked once by a young lady, how did I know that I loved my wife? And I said that with my wife, I was natural. There was no game being played. I wasn't trying to be witty or charming or any of these things. I was just myself. And it felt comfortable being with her. And no tension. If love is impure, tension will arise between the parties. And this manifests then as insecurity in the relationship, leading to jealousy, suspicion and fear. The relationship becomes for the use and benefit of the insecure person. And there arises the need to control the other person out of fear that the loved one cares more for others or work or money, etc. And this insecurity means that the love that is then given has conditions. Effectively, it is bought love. However, love can never be charged for. It must be free. And this insecurity produces anger according to the intensity of the insecurity. The insecurity forces demands to be placed on the loved one. 
basically to behave according to one's own needs. It is one's own desires that need to be satisfied and not the happiness of the loved one. The effect of the demands is resentment and withdrawal by the loved one, leading to even more insecurity in the other party. The second effect is partiality. This manifests as selfishness at its worst or preference at its best. At the extreme end, the meaning of the self is reduced to myself and we love for our own benefit. Everything is directed to our own interest. Now it can extend beyond myself and then we will act in the interests of the group we consider close to myself, such as my family. Whatever circle we choose to confine ourselves to, there will be no concern for the knowledge, bliss, health and freedom of those outside that circle. There is no worry if others are denied these. And for a moment, just consider the world's fundamental indifference to the poverty and deprivation of at least one billion people. People will go to any length to secure knowledge, bliss, health and freedom for their own circle, irrespective of the loss to others. If this sort of preference were to happen within a family, we would consider the parents as unfit to have a family. Well, maybe if we do it to mankind, we are unfit to be human beings. Now, even those within their selected circles are not truly loved. They are simply preferred. And this preference leads to demands being made on the loved ones and a desire to control them. The love which is universal in its capacity is confined to a few. And the confinement leads to an intensity between the parties, i.e. tension between the parties. Then peace and harmony and rest are sought elsewhere, in the bottle, in the company of others, or wherever. Now, when pure love knows no partiality and has broken all the circles of limitation, there is the allowance of other people's desires to be fulfilled and for them to enjoy full happiness without having any desires of our own. So let us turn now to the practice of love. In truth, we all know how to love. We just don't do it. We might say, how could I love X or Y? I don't feel any love for him or her. Well, practice love. Be loving, act lovingly, and the feelings of love will arise. Absence of the feeling of love is not proof of the absence of love. It is proof of the absence of practicing being loving. 
And again, just consider how much of every day do we practice loving others? How much do we practice every day loving those outside our family and friends? We may practice love inside the family, particularly when it comes to the children. But outside the family, we have a different standard. Only those with our blood get our pure love, as if that was a valid basis for determining worthiness of being loved. Pure love accepts the human responsibility to love your neighbours as yourself, i.e. everybody as myself. We think we have done our job if we love a husband or wife, a few children, our parents and a few siblings. The other six billion people, however, do not get our love because we have not thought that we should love them, that it is our human duty. Now, practice makes perfect. And if we do not practice for a sport during the week, we cannot expect to play well on the Saturday. If we do not practice loving all the time, in the end, we will not be able to truly love even the members of our family. Love is not something which can be turned on and off depending on our mood. And since love brings us so much joy, we should ask ourselves, where is the sense in confining it to such a few people? Let humanity be our family. To love all should be the most important aspect of our life. It is the fulfillment of human life. To have pure love, we must have no reservations, but be prepared to cast ourselves into the flame. And then we will sacrifice ourselves to mankind as if it were one being with us. Now, it is impossible to compel oneself to the love of others. You cannot force yourself to love others. You might remember when you were a child and you were told to go over and talk to your appalling auntie and be nice to her. It was impossible. This is where we may have learned socializing, but not the ability to love. To grow in love, all one can do is drop that which prevents the full expression of the love that naturally resides in our hearts. Pure love already exists there in all its fullness, but we are restricting its expression. And just as undammed water will naturally find its way to the ocean, so remove the restrictions and pure love will manifest fully in our lives. So the following practices should be heard in the light of any limitations that there may be in the practice of our love to date and the importance of practice to our own true and substantial happiness. And so the first practice of love is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Nothing more allows the growth of love than to train ourselves ardently to be reciprocal, i.e. to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We all know how we wish to be treated, so we cannot claim an absence of knowledge with regard to how to treat others, simply an absence of practicing what we do know. And this simple principle is the ultimate educator with regard to the discovery as to what true love is. And if we remember this great and wise statement, we will guide all life's actions for the benefit of all. Such a life is guided by love and therefore it can do no harm nor come to any harm. The second Practice is acceptance. And it is said in the Old Testament that on the sixth day God looked out and he saw that it was very good. Now when you look out, what do you see? Do you see that it is very good? Well, we should see as God sees. We should see others as young children see. How does the child do this and how do we fail to do it? You know, the child sees you in a way that you cannot even see yourself. And how does it do it? Well, the child is free, the young child is free of the knowledge of good and evil. And this freedom allows it to accept everything as it is. Pure love is acceptance, and acceptance is pure love. And what does it mean to accept? It is to accept as complete, as perfect, who or what is in front of you. Now, we often say we love someone, but how often do we actually experience loving that person? You know, if you were standing in a bath full of water, it would be natural that you would experience the water for all the time that you were standing in it. Well, if there is love, we should be experiencing that love all the time. And if we're not experiencing it, except on rare occasions, then something is not being fully accepted about the person at the moment in time. So if there is not the experience of love in the moment for the one who is in front of us, we should ask, what is it that is not being accepted unreservedly now about that person? And is this non-acceptance or rejection reasonable? And if it does not stand to reason, then drop it. To be unreasonable is to deny ourselves the opportunity to love. This acceptance means you accept people's individuality, accept that others think differently, behave differently. People will eat and they will walk and they will decide at a different speed than you. 
It doesn't mean it's a wrong speed, it's just a different speed than you. They will value things differently than you. And do not try to change people. And I've said this before, and it's sort of a humorous, but it's a valid observation, that when a man and woman are getting married, the man is at the end of the aisle and the lady's brought down the aisle, and then they're just side by side. And ordinarily he will now look down at his beloved bride, and a thought will arise in his mind, or a desire, or a hope will arise in his mind. He says, I hope she stays just like this all her life. And she looks up at him and she says, I hope he changes. <laughs> and both are bitterly disappointed. He never changes and she does. The requisite to friendship is the acceptance of each other's individuality. And the duty of friendship is to continuously help each other to develop and not to try to make the friend to become more and more like us. And here's a fundamental point. People do not have to be so-called lovable to be loved. We only have to accept them as they are. The test is with us and not with them. We may think that some do not deserve our love. And this is what Khalil Gibran in The Prophet said. You often say, I would give but only to the deserving. The trees in your orchard say not so, nor the flocks in your pasture. They give that they may live, for to withhold is to perish. Surely he who is worthy to receive his days and his nights is worthy of all else from you. And he who has deserved to drink from the ocean of life deserves to fill his cup from your little stream. The next practice is no judgment. What naturally follows on from acceptance is the absence of judgment. And again Christ said, judge not lest ye be judged. But we ordinarily simply ignore it. We think it is using our intelligence when we judge. In fact, it is essential to judge, otherwise we are being mindless. Well, would we encourage our children to judge us? At what age would you say, now a good thing to start would be to start judging me and your mother? Where is the equity or the justice in judging others. The effect of judgment is to inhibit or deny love. We would not encourage our children to effectively practice limiting their love for us and then one day their spouses. All judgment denies the presence of the one self in the other. And it is for that that we will be judged.
We could adopt the practice of Marsilio Ficino, who was said to be the philosophical father of the Italian Renaissance. And this is what he said in one of his letters with regard to patience. He said, Whenever I see in a man those things which offend me, I remember that I too am a man and therefore possess some attribute which may offend others. Have we ever considered this? What is there in us which is offensive to others? I remember asking a married man who had difficulty with regard to relationships in business, not in his marriage, but in business. I said, if you were a woman, would you marry you? And he said, not in one million years. And he's right. Would you like to be married to you? A practice of love will be to consider, well, what in us is offensive to others? And then to stop inflicting ourselves on the world in this way. Give the world a break. Right? Now, judgment involves a claim of superiority that the faults perceived in the others do not apply to us. Also, it denies any responsibility on our part for the faults or behavior of others. And again, Khalil Gibran in the Prophet has something very interesting and beautiful to say about this. Just hear these words, they're glorious. Oftentimes have I heard you speak of one who commits a wrong as though they were not one of you, but a stranger unto you and an intruder upon your world. But I say that even as the holy and the righteous cannot rise up beyond the highest which is in each one of you, so the wicked and the weak cannot fall lower than the lowest which is in you also. And as a single leaf turns not yellow, but with the silent knowledge of the whole tree, so the wrongdoer cannot do wrong without the hidden will of you all. Like a procession, you walk together towards your God-self. You are the way and the wayfarers. And when one of you falls down, he falls for those behind him, a caution against the stumbling stone. Aye, and he falls for those ahead of him, who though faster and surer of foot, yet removed not the stumbling stone. So to practice love is to pass no judgment. And if there is no judgment, then there can be no criticism. To practice love is to forego criticism. And the rule is do not criticize anyone even silently in your own head. It will create a remarkable space for your head. Now, criticism isolates. 
it isolates the one who is criticised only if it is allowed to. But it automatically and immediately isolates the one who criticises. If we were to voice aloud all our criticisms on a daily basis, no matter how small they might be, think how negative people would consider us to be. The most important person not to criticise is oneself. Self-love is the most important love. To love my neighbour as myself, it is necessary to love myself. Self-love is not selfish. It's not narcissism. Self-love actually determines our capacity to love others because it creates the capacity to give, whereas selfishness only creates the capacity to take. And selfishness arises when there's an absence of self-love. If you loved yourself, you would not put selfishness into your heart. So it said, selfishness arises when there is the absence of self-love. And this is because the fruit of love is generosity to all. And with the absence of self-love, one becomes greedy for oneself and thus ignores the needs of others. The next practice is to act for the welfare of the other. So to practice love is to act in the best interest of others. It is their happiness that motivates us, i.e. like bringing the child to the circus. Their happiness is our happiness, but it is their happiness which motivates us. And here's another very crunchy consideration. For those of us that are married or in a relationship, we all know what pleases our spouses. But do we do or give them what pleases them? Even a restaurant makes an effort to do that for its customers. And if I just say from my own life, I'm married, or we are married, in fact, if I include her in the scene, uh, we are married for 29 years and a bit. And it has taken me 29 years to fold the bathroom towel after I use it and to wipe up all the little splashes of water after I come out of the shower. 29 years. I have known for 29 years that my wife goes around behind me. <laughs> so I'm wiping away these splashes and every time I go back into the bathroom the towel is folded. Now I've known this for 29 years but did I want to fold the towel? No. I will stay with you to my dying breath, but give me a break when it comes to towels. So I've known all these years that it would please my wife if I did these things, but I didn't. So that's how petty it can become. So practice pleasing the ones we love. And this does not deny the need to correct bad or useless behavior as we do when rearing children, but there's no criticism. One's concern is for the welfare or best interest of the others, 
not whether something is unpleasant or not. Fear of strife would not affect our actions. We love our children, but we correct them so that they may be free of limitation. That which we love, we wish to grow. The next practice is sacrifice or surrender. Now, love is full of sacrifice and attachment is full of selfishness. In love, there is always sacrifice for the beloved. There is nothing to take and everything to give. And to go towards love is to give all for the beloved. To sacrifice is to surrender self-interest for the interest of the other. And the proof of our love is what we are willing to surrender for our loved ones. So the question is, what are we willing to surrender? And secondly, what do we actually surrender? And is there a difference? And why the difference? So, for example, if my wife said to me, would you give one of your kidneys to me if I was in healthcare? I'd say, absolutely. But when I go down to pick a video at the video store, I don't want a film with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks in it. <laughs> right? I want blood, guts, violence, bullets, death, everything. And the strength it takes not to pick the film for me. Now, kidney, no problem. You can have the kidney any day you want. <laughs> but to sit through an hour and a half of some film that I don't really want to watch. Well, there's no point in being willing to offer a kidney but always picking your video. So the practice is to eliminate the gap between what we would surrender and what we do surrender on a day-to-day -day basis. What is not put on the table and why? We can talk about love, but to practice love is to give all. And caring for others is one of the active aspects of love. Another practice is to make no demands on the one who is loved. And as was said previously, all demands nullify love. Demands control. Attachment or possession seeks to control, but love liberates. And decontrolling at the physical and subtle levels is the working out of love. And controlling is based either on jealousy or fear. And neither have any part to play in pure love. We may think that we do not control others, but reflect for a moment on the small ways in which we try to get others to behave with regard to a multitude of matters. And again, if I can give you from my own life, when I'm walking, I'm going somewhere. I know that's very controversial, but that's the way it is. I'm going somewhere. And this means I move at speed. When my wife walks, she's just walking. In fact, she walks like a mourner behind a hearse. <laughs> right? Now, 
for at least, I'd say, the first 10 or 12 years of the marriage, I tried to get her to walk faster. So I would swoop in beside her and just increase the speed a little bit, hoping this would motivate her to move her legs slightly faster. Sometimes I would let her head off ahead, and then I'd wait, and then I'd come up behind the passer, hoping that might sort of catch her in the tailwind, that sort of thing, you know? And then I would just stride ahead angrily and leave her behind and then sit down on the wall and wait for her to come. Everything. Just try and make her walk faster. My speed of walking because that's the right way to walk. So after 10 years, I started to walk like somebody in pain, tiny little steps, right? very slowly. In fact, as the years go on, I'm beginning to slow down anyway. So. <laughs> now, all these ways that we're trying to change the other person and control them and trying to just make them do things in a particular way, they're all very small and petty and reflect an attempt on our part to play God, to be master of the creation in so much as it affects us. And the last thing is that we should expand, or so the second last thing, we should expand the circle of our love. So have only one standard of love, and that is to love all fully. Whatever is our circle of love, expand it. If we cannot include all at once, then expand it according to our current capacity. Include more and more within the circle of our love until the whole universe is included. Such a heart is a happy heart. And be innocent, that is, never cause pain to anyone by thought, word or deed. And take those that we find challenging, those that we find it most difficult to love, and practice being loving towards them. It is remarkably strengthening and freeing. And I've told this before, but when Mr. McLaren, the man who found the School of Philosophy, he asked me to take on the leadership of the school. And when he did, he gave me one piece of advice, and he said, you may have no friends and I took this to mean it wasn't that I should create an enemy of every single member of the School of Philosophy, but I could not prefer anybody. So I must treat everybody equally. And when that sort of realization of what he meant arose in the mind, I broke out into a cold sweat thinking of all the people in the School of Philosophy who drove me insane. Absolutely insane. And it is a remarkable thing to do, to accept that, that you will treat everybody equally. And it is hard work at the start. But then one day you go free. It's not hard work anymore. You can see the self in everybody. Now, I'm still having difficulty with Liverpool supporters, but I'm working on that. <laughs> to love our own family, our own customer, is no great shakes. As Jesus said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now the last thing, the last practice of love, to develop love in our lives, is compassion. The essential feature of love is sharing with the world. And hear these words. If we cannot share in the sorrows of the world, 
we will be unable to fully share in the joys of the world. You cannot let one in and keep the other out. Instead of our hearts being a reflection of the heart of the universe, we will in effect be cut off from the universe. Without love in the heart, a hard core forms around it, shutting out emotive communion. Compassion is the wish for others to be free of their suffering and a willingness to make efforts according to one's capacity and circumstances to do something about it. So compassion is not feeling sorry for others. It is being moved to do something about the misery of others without becoming miserable ourselves. Genuine compassion is for all, the rich and the poor and our own self. It is not restricted or biased towards those whom we like or deem deserving. And marriage is the great practicing ground for compassion because the essential pact in marriage is that the parties will face the events of life together. That is, good and bad in life will be met as one. The other is never left to suffer alone, not even for a moment. And with this, there is nothing that life can present that cannot be faced. So to be a true practitioner of love is to be married to the world and never to leave anyone suffer alone. So to practice love is to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, to accept everybody as complete or perfect, to pass no judgment and make no criticism, to act for the welfare of others, to sacrifice for others by surrendering our limits, to make no demands, to expand our circle of love until it includes all, and to be compassionate to all. So, as we can see, a life of love is not an idle life. So, to conclude, in the end, how much we practice love and accordingly, how much love we will experience in our lives will be determined by how we answer one solitary question. And each one of us has to answer this question in our life. And our answer will determine the mark we make, whether our life is of any real benefit to others, and whether we find that peace which passeth all understanding. And the question is, for whose sake have I come into this world? To what or whom is my life dedicated? And we should reflect on this question. And having decided on our answer, we should practice living by it. Tolstoy said, if we live for ourselves alone, we will feel surrounded by enemies and the happiness of other people will be seen as an obstacle to our own happiness. Live for others and we will feel surrounded by friends and the happiness of each will become our happiness.
Now, when our love becomes pure love, universal love, then alone will we be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Why live on earth now when we could live in heaven now? To love is to be in heaven. It is heavenly. Now, we were all deported a long time ago. And those of us who have started to love are the equivalent of asylum seekers. And it is time for full citizenship. And the practice of love is the key to entitlement. So, that's the end of the talk. Thank you very much. Well, are we ready to start? So, what would you like to ask? The gentleman in the front there. The prospect of uh, heaven and earth is very appealing, but is it possible? Isn't the mechanics of living in society the story of division of labor and the division of the private and public self? So, at one time, you're a father, a son a brother, but usually at different times. I mean, it's, it would be nice to be able to experience the whole feeling, the whole the love of all these different capacities. But it's usually divided up like all our roles in society. So is it possible? Yes. All right, well, that's a very good question. It's a bit like this. Society is like a body, right? And a body has many parts. So you don't try and hold a knife which are ear, or something like that. There are parts which are very useful for holding knives and forks or for walking with and things like that. What is required is that each part is willing to serve the whole according to its talent and its capacity. So if the hands are willing to do the holding and the legs, the walking and the ears, the hearing, well then you can have a happy body and a fulfilled body. So in society... The way it is, it's not that you try and undertake all roles. What you do is you become a master of a role or a number of roles according to your talents and then you serve others with those. So if I can give an example of it. Now I'm going to give you a different version of this. It's much more beautifully said in the actual book. It was by Henry George. It's the Savannah story. And what he talks about, if you can imagine a great land in which no people occupy the land and it's a very fertile land and a settler arrives on the land and he travels through it and he comes to this valley, this magnificent valley and he decides to settle down there. The country where he used to reside and he was a farmer. This land is so fertile he can grow food for thousands and thousands of people even though there's himself, the wife and five children. What he does, anyway, he builds a very poor house because he was not a builder. But the food he grows is just magnificent. So they eat like kings. But anyway, they live in this old shack. There isn't a jacuzzi anywhere to be found in the place. And the roof leaks and all that sort of stuff. And the ensuite is absolutely nothing to write home about. So, because there's no doctor, either illnesses last a long time or 
people can die off, and their clothes are very, very crude as well. What happens is another settler comes over the hills and comes into the valley, and he used to be a builder. He was from Roscommon, in fact. And what he says, look, I cannot grow food, but I can build houses. So I will build houses for you and your family, and the furniture and the contents and all that sort of stuff, if you will share some of your surplus food with me. So now, fantastic houses they live in, and the interior decor is magnificent, and they eat like kings, but they dress very shabbily. Anyway, the next family over the hill, the guy used to work as a designer with Ralph Lauren. So, anyway, he comes in, he says, look, I can't build a house for peanuts, and I can't grow food, but I will make beautiful clothes for everybody. And so he does this. Now everybody's dressed beautifully, they live in fantastic houses, and they eat very, very well. I'll just do one last one. Then a doctor comes over the hill. Anyway, so now everybody enjoys excellent health, or better health anyway, etc., etc., etc. And what it is, with each person willing to share their surplus with everybody else, enhances the life of everybody else. All right. This is what life is all about. We all have talent. We all have something which we have in surplus. And the idea is to make that available to those who are in deficit of that. And so if somebody has lost their equanimity, you know, they're very, very angry in front of you, and you are totally at peace with yourself, share your equanimity with them, because they are starved of equanimity. And you do not have to worry that you only have one role to play, that you're just the farmer, or you're just the doctor, or you're just the house builder, or the clothes designer, because it doesn't make any difference. You benefit from the labours of all. So your life is enriched by everybody, even though you're not carrying out all those activities. So there's nothing wrong with specialization of function. Where specialization of function has gone wrong is that it's isolated, and people are not sharing in the entire. If society could allow specialization of function, but for the benefit of all, then life would be harmonious and enriched by everybody's labors and activities. It's like if you love someone, say a father going to see his son or daughter play some sport, and let's say he wasn't particularly good at sport himself, but seeing the son or daughter excel in the sport, that brings him happiness. Even though he's devoid of the talent himself, the love of that person allows him to enjoy the talent of another. So if there is love in your heart, you will simply enjoy the talents of everybody. That's the way it works. Yes, anybody else? Um, you were speaking about the importance of the practice of giving love, and it seems that, well, it seems that it's also important to practice receiving, not to go around looking for something, but because in the same way that we can block ourselves from giving, we can block or ignore all the abundance that's coming our way. So I just thought it would be interesting to hear you say something about that. Yes. To be able to receive love is obviously extremely important. But the law is give and you shall receive. So there is one first and the other second. If you can't give love, you won't be able to receive it. You can only give love if there is self-love. That's what you're giving. You're giving of yourself 
to another. And if there isn't love for yourself, you won't be able to receive it. Let's say a person thinks they're not particularly beautiful. And somebody says, you're looking beautiful today. They say, I'll go away out of that. <laughs> now, now, that's not something that I would ever say. <laughs> <laughs> so there has to be self-love, first of all. And with self-love, in abundance, you give it away. And because you can give it, then you can receive it. Otherwise, you'll simply deny it. The suicide or the suicidal person, the one person that they don't love is themselves. That's why they can be surrounded by people who are offering them love, but they cannot receive it until the self-love arises. You must allow people to love you. You must allow people to express their gratitude to you. And you must never dismiss it and say, ah, sure, it was nothing. If it was something, it was something. If it was nothing, it was nothing. But don't make something nothing. If people want to acknowledge your talents or your greatness, well, then graciously accept it. It's not loving to deny people the opportunity to love you. Does that answer or not? Kind of answers it, but I was also thinking of... It was only about five out of ten of the answer, wasn't it? All right. It was a great answer. I'll accept that. <laughs> <laughs> the thought that was also there was about the other forms of love, you know, like the beauty around, or, you know, just the small gestures that people make Absolutely. who we've never met before, or Absolutely. the busman who stops and waits for an extra minute to, get on, to let you get on the bus or but it's, it's all love. The whole point about it is, it is actually all love or frustrated love. That's all that activity is. The human being is moved by love. If you watch little children running around in a play yard, it's rocket fuel love that just moves them up and down the playground. They can't stop themselves. Watch a young child when the mother comes into the room. It's lifted out of its seat by love and it is impelled into the arms of the mother by love. The trouble is, around eight or nine, we find the off switch. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is the wonderful thing, the, the way the Shankaracharya put it. He said that if it is not checked, the love will expand from family to the entire universe without any effort on your part. It will just go on and on and on. So the key is, in relation to ourselves, or if we happen to be rearing a family, is not to check the love. And one of the ways you do it is stop teaching children that's mine and that's not mine. Stop dividing up the universe. Because they don't see it like that. The reason the child comes home with a bike from the house down the road is not because you've got a potential thief on your hands. It's because, as far as it's concerned, the entire creation exists for its benefit. And it's right. It's actually right. So, yes, anybody else? There's a gentleman back there on the right. Self-love seems central to what tonight's lecture has been about, but... 
people don't go around saying I love myself generally. Yes. You sort of think that they're a bit weird if they do. And it's a bit of almost nebulous. What do you mean by self-love? How do you know if you love yourself? And how do you attain that? Or how do, do people attain that? First of all, if you love yourself, it doesn't mean you go around saying it all the time. It doesn't require that. You don't need to convince yourself there just is that love. To give you an example of it, and it's only an example at a level, say if we accept that there's a physical, a mental, and an emotional aspect to our being, at least. Now, and let's just take the physical one. An adult, when it looks in the mirror, cannot look without criticism arising. All right? We think whoever assembled this had an off day. And and I save up for that plastic surgery, I'm going to make improvements on the original design. You can all try it. When you go home to see me, see if you can look into the mirror and no criticism arise. Now then look at, say, a two-year-old looking in the mirror. And there is no criticism. It doesn't mean it's good-looking. But it can see no fault, not because it's blind, but because it sees its own soul. It doesn't judge itself by the length of its nose or the, how many kilos it is or anything like that at all. It has only one value, the value of its essence. And with that, nothing matters. That's why a child loves the parent, not because the parent is particularly nice or particularly anything. But a child can look into the essence or soul of the parent. So what you have to do is, if you want to love yourself, is to find that which is love in yourself. And it's not a matter of reshaping the body or getting a PhD for the mind or anything like that at all. There is that in the being which is perfect. And when that is connected with, it's like a light. It makes everything light. So it makes everything perfect. Again, it's a very mundane example, but let's say you're dating with somebody and you're not particularly fond of them. Well, the less fond you are of them, the more important it is that the meal is good. Because <laughs> right? I'm paying for this. And also that it doesn't rain and that the car starts and all these things. But when you love, you can walk in the rain and it makes no difference. The car breaking down is just a shared adventure. And you'll hold the umbrella over her as she goes underneath the car to fix it. <laughs> so, this is a marvelous thing about love. What it makes, it makes everything have no significance at all. It removes all differences. Love is remarkably generous. When there is love in your heart, you want everybody to love just like you. You want everybody to be enjoying it just like you. It's remarkably generous. So you want it for everybody. You want everybody to feel as good as you feel. Stop judging yourself according to body, mind, and heart. Stop doing that. Stop passing judgment. And when you stop passing judgment, you will find that love will naturally begin to arise. 
That's really the way. You cannot create love because love is already there. Like, there's nothing you can do to make the water go to the ocean. You can only remove the obstacles which are stopping it. You could ask yourself, well, what is it that prevents the full flow of love in my life? Now, it could be caution, fear, a million factors. We'll just start to work on them. And as you work on them, more and more and more, the love begins to flow. That's the way it works. No, it is good. <laughs> yes, anybody else? Oh, yes, there's a gentleman here. You made a distinction between being in love and loving. Being in love is the romanticism that's kind of celebrated in song, film, poetry, and so on with that. Yes. But actually loving is rarely celebrated as such. To what extent is romantic love, being in love and you know, experiencing the blindness of love, to what extent is it really blind in misdirecting people for their future partnership? While I mentioned this differentiation, there is no differentiation. People are trying to differentiate between being in love and loving. It's a false differentiation. And they do it in order to describe romantic love. The truth about the matter, romantic love is not love. It's attraction. At its highest, it can be infatuation. So it has an intensity to it. But the interesting thing about love is that love is cool. It's extremely cool. And that's why it doesn't burn up your energy. It actually gives you energy. Whereas infatuation or this being in love, you're sort of burnt out after about a fortnight. <laughs> you know. The tragedy is, is that everybody's looking for that romantic love. And what people do is they sometimes Somebody says, I don't know whether I love the person. They sort of look down here. And they're expecting something to be going on in this region, some sort of agitation, sort of emotional indigestion or something, which would prove it. So that if they sort of couldn't sleep at night or they were sort of began to shower three times a day or something like this, this would indicate love. It's not like that at all. What tends to happen, and this is the real tragedy, is that people mistake that intensity for depth of love. And that can often get you down the aisle. That's what impels you down the aisle. And like any decent forest fire or sort of petrol fire, it burns out very quickly. If you're very unfortunate, there's nothing left. It goes like that. It's like somebody bursting a bubble. And if you're very fortunate, True love has begun to express itself as the fire is going down. And so, as it goes down, the true love matures. Everybody's looking for intensity as proof of love. And it's not pr that's not proof at all. Pure love does not lack romanticism. Because when there is love for somebody, you delight in delighting them. If you take an example, a mother preparing for a child's party... It's unbelievable the sort of things they can buy, millions of things. 
it would be cheaper to go away for a fortnight to Florida <laughs> than all these little things. When I watched my wife do it, it was just amazing, this delight in all these little surprises and just to bring that smile to the child's face. But it's not the essence of it. Candlelight does not enhance love. You should be able to experience love in darkness. And to only experience it at sunrise and sunset is a tragedy. It needs to be there in the rain and the sun. It needs to be there in poverty and in wealth. It needs to be there in sickness and in health and all of these sorts of things. We cannot blame the media. That's an important thing. We cannot blame Hollywood or literature. If people were educated in love in their homes, they would never be fooled. You'd still enjoy the film and all of that. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But you wouldn't believe it. The film is not something you're meant to believe in. It's just light entertainment. And people need to experience true love in the house. And they need to see the household that its love goes out into the community. Say in my household, there would have been an attempt to live it and there would have been an attempt to speak it to the children. But it's very interesting when your children get to be older and they start to bring back potential partners. <laughs> you begin to twitch and you ask all the appalling questions like, what does her father do? <laughs> yeah. And all these sort of questions. And it's terrible. And you have to restrain yourself from falling into the trap that thinking that the sideshow is the important aspect. And it's a challenge because it's so habitual in us. Our lives are lived on the basis of selection and rejection. And just to say this, I know you haven't asked this, but just to say it, nowadays we're dating longer and longer and longer. So people are dating much younger and they're getting married much later. So that means they have more relationships on average. So they can have, you know, 10, 20, 30 relationships, even if they're only for a week or two weeks or they're long ones. It doesn't make any difference. And let's say somebody manages to date 30 different people and they marry the 30th one. That means there were 29 rejections some arising from one side and some arising from the other. So let's just we make, we split it or we make it 15 rejections. Now every time somebody rejects you, it scars your heart. Because what they actually say to you is, you are not worthy of my love. That's what they're saying. They may not use those words, but that's what they're saying. You do not satisfy me. You do not fulfill me. You are not worthy of my presence. Now you do that to somebody 15 times before they get married and they will go into a full relationship such as marriage cautiously. Not giving all in case they get rejected again. So you get this very safe living. Now when you marry, you should be divinely reckless with your heart. Like a child is. You know, way children, when they declare their love for you, there's nothing cautious about it all. They don't look and say, well, now, if I say I love him very much, and he only says I love you a bit, then I've overextended the thing. The child is not like that at all. The child comes up and says, I love you zillions. It gets to the limit immediately. You know the effect of that? 
You know when a child comes up and absolutely puts his arm around their neck and hugs it so tight? What happens to your heart? It melts. Now, if you live cautiously with a man or a woman, you will not melt their heart. But if you are divinely reckless, <laughs> then you will melt their heart. And a melted heart is a delight to be married to. <laughs> and a cautious heart is a challenging heart to live with. But let it be true, love. And again, I just talk about marriage. It is an amazing institution. We have no real understanding of what marriage is anymore. What marriage is is a commitment between two people that they will face the events of life together. So it's side by side. It's you and me. No matter what life presents, we will meet it together. Now imagine knowing that there is somebody who will never leave your side. Who will share the good times and the bad times with you. That is an amazing thing to have. Somebody who will never abandon you to suffer alone. And I've told this story before. I just think it's a wonderful story of love. Arthur Ashe, the tennis player, when he was in his late 30s, needed a triple bypass. So they had to give him blood transfusions. And unfortunately, the blood that was put into his body was infected. So he got HIV and AIDS. I think it must have been HIV at the time. Anyway, so he's told. He's three weeks out of the operation. He's lying in the bed and the doctor tells him, I'm very sorry, but you've got HIV. And his wife is coming in that afternoon and he decides that he will set her free. She's in her mid-30s. So he's going to say to her, you can go. So when she comes in to the hospital, he tells her, you can go free. I will not have any hold over you. And she just held his hand and she said, you and me, babe, you and me. Now that's marriage. And see, the marvelous thing is, when a person rises to something like that, they become a magnificent human being. And even if it ends in apparent tragedy, you have lived magnificently. Does that make sense? And I just take Martin Luther King, people may take their favourite man, but Martin Luther King Jr. died at age 38. Now, better to live 38 years like that than 75 years cautiously. Live magnificently, not lengthily. Does that make sense? And love magnificently. In our present culture, marriage seems to be suffering a diminution today. Yes. And it seems to be superseded by, over the last 15, 20 years, by partnerships, which seem to lack that unconditionality that you were talking about. And as a father of five children, most of whom are adult at this stage, and you know, I personally share with other parents concern about which option will be selected and whether maybe the partnership idea should precede marriage. I'd love to hear your view on that. The word partnership is a low-grade word. Partnership does not imply union. It only implies commonality. 
So let's say a partner in business, I have a shareholding, you have a shareholding. But there are two separate shareholdings in the same entity. So it's a commonality, but it's not unity. Unity is a different thing. And marriage is for unity. It is the ultimate. It is when the two become one. So if you want a partner in life, that's fine. That's like two railway tracks going in the same direction, but they never meet fully. Right? That's fine. But if you want unity, it's a different thing. And this is why, if you take in the uh, Christian marriage, you know when at the start of the ceremony, there are three candles up there, and one lights one and the other one lights the other. I can't remember the actual sequence, but in the end, they both light the centre one. A partnership is where you've got two candles in the same room. And a marriage, a real marriage, if it is marriage, i.e. the commitment to face life together as one, irrespective of circumstances. That's what marriage is. If it is that, then it is union. The marvellous thing about it is that, as every woman in this room knows, the male is an incomplete human being. He's a limited version of humanity. Now, the men are not to admit this. You can think this privately. But it is also (laughs) apparent, though not as apparent, that the female is a limited version of humanity. And it is in the two becoming one that you get the fulfillment of humanity. So man and woman are complement to each other. But they must unite to find that unity. And then what actually happens is the human being goes beyond his own gender or her own gender. You go from being a male or a female to being a human being. That's a very rare event. and This is not a perfect example of it, but it's in a different context. But, you know, it's hard to think of Mother Teresa as Albanian. You don't think, well, she was Albanian, and you don't think she was small, and you don't even think that she was a woman. You don't think like that. You think she was a great human being, gone beyond gender. And Mandela isn't a black South African. He's a great human being. He was able to transcend race, all these sorts of things. What marriage does is it beats the limitations out of you. (laughs) Because if you put these two quite distinct entities into a room and you say you're now contracted for 50 years and they agree to do it, they agree to stay with it and they work at it, it means all your limitations are rubbed away. It may take 29 years to fold a towel, but in the end, it will come to you. What the Shankaracharya says, and it's absolutely beautiful, he says, if you cannot find love in the family, then do not expect to find it in the universe. It is the first testing ground to find it in family. This is where you learn to love. It's in family, where you learn to share, to sacrifice to serve others in a family environment. And if you cannot do it amongst your blood relations, then it's going to be extremely difficult with people who have no such relationship with you. So that's the place to find it. Does that help? Somehow cultural trends, new mindsets, things like that, seem to um, undermine one's deeper sense of value 
And I, I think that is a problem. We tend to be kind of, all of us, and particularly younger people, tend to be swept by the tide of culture. To be your own person, to stand up and be counted, to... I, I just said to my son there recently, he was wearing an iPod, and I was calling him and he didn't hear me. It was a barrier, you know. And I said, if you have an iPod in your ear all the time, I said, you have no time to reflect. You have no time to relate to people. Uh, you have no time to pray. Yes. And he kind of agreed, yes. you know. And he so moved out the next day, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> My own personal conviction is that these kind of new cultural trends are very, very overwhelming. And they carry people along in a herd thinking, um, in a, it a herd thinking way. They lose their individuality. They lose their deeper sense of value. And they stop philosophizing. Absolutely. Or they never begin. So, let's say there's a stronger current, then you have to swim harder. That's the way it is. Well, first of all, you need to do it for yourself. As you can't have a cigarette hanging out of your mouth and tell your children not to smoke. So they need to see it in you first. It just can't be words. You have to live it first. But there's a fundamental choice in life, that you're going to be a follower or a leader. It's a fundamental choice. And you have to decide it for yourself, that you're going to be your own man, and lead yourself, or you're going to follow the masses. And you should put that to your children again and again and again. Do you want to be a follower or a leader? The interesting thing is, every single child, without exception, says, I want to be a leader. But the vast majority become followers. So you must teach the child to be a leader. And to be a leader doesn't necessarily mean leading others, though it might involve leading others, it means leading yourself. So to lead yourself you must have self-discipline. That's the only way. So you teach them that. And you teach them that discipline is not a restriction on your freedom, it's the guarantee of your freedom. So the man who disciplines himself to swim has the freedom to be in the water, whereas the one who doesn't discipline himself to swim is confined to the seashore. So you must educate them. And you must call out the leader in them. It is there, as I said, every human being wants to be self-reliant, wants to be complete. But you must start at a very early age. Don't wait till 17 or 18 and the entire body has been tattooed and there's, you know, whatever. You've got, you've got to work at an earlier age, you know, about six months type of thing. Just take the bottle out of their mouth and say, I have something important to tell you. <laughs> So just stop sucking for a minute. But it is a very, very important thing to put. And there are very fundamental questions which a human being has to decide on at various stages of life. And one of them is, am I going to be a leader or a follower? Now, there's a price for being a leader. And that is, it may be a lonely life. Because you have to sort of step out. If you can be true to yourself then you will sleep contentedly every night and you will enjoy every day. But if you're not true to yourself, then it is an extremely dissatisfying life. If we all ask ourselves, we all had a vision for our lives, we may not have formulated it completely, but we all had a vision for our lives. Is this where you were meant to turn up, you know, whatever age you are, attending some second-rate philosophy lecture? <laughs> Was that it? Now, all I know, if I look at my own life, it was a glorious vision I had when I was a young man. Glorious vision for this life. 
And I think people have that. Deep down, they may not even remember it now. They had an idealism that has not been realised. And the thing to do, you don't have to give young people idealism. They have it in abundance. But what you have to do is to give them the strength to adhere to that idealism that they remain true to themselves. So you, first of all, say, as a father, must remain true to yourself. It's no good being a man or a woman full of regret and telling your children, don't do what I did. That only makes them think of euthanasia. <laughs> so, yes, anybody else? Um, you talked about married life being the ultimate, really, and having a partner to go on in married life with, but could you speak about a single life? And also, if somebody has, or two questions, if somebody has, as you would call it, a hard heart or a closed heart, can love overcome this? Can somebody yes. love them and overcome this, that they yes. can open their heart? They're the two All questions. Right. Well, to take the first question, well, uh, oh yes, the single life. It's not that married life is an advantage over the single life. can't say that. There are those who should not marry, and there are those who should marry. In other words, it would be an advantage for certain people to marry, and it is no advantage for other people to marry. One aspect of marriage is it takes you out of individuality. It forces you to move into a larger circle, because you have to consider somebody else. So, if there isn't marriage, well then, the work still has to be, how do I move to a larger and larger circle? What the Shankaracharya says is, if you're not married, then become married to the truth. And I, I use your life to pursue truth. Be married to truth. And truth won't let you down, whereas he may. <laughs> the important thing is that if the life is a single life, is it doesn't reduce to total individuality that the life is dedicated to something which takes one beyond one's own individual existence. It's not that marriage is the ultimate, but if somebody says, is marriage greater than partnership? Absolutely. Because marriage is unity, whereas partnership, as I said, is sort of commonality. So does that answer the first question? And then the second one, there is no more powerful force in the creation than love. So... Of course, love can melt the hard-hearted. Let's say you had a soft heart and there was somebody who had a hard heart. You can't say, I am going to melt your heart, even if it kills me. Because in the end, the person has to agree to their heart being melted. And just to give you an example, say when you're angry with somebody and you've had an argument and it hasn't been resolved and you're carrying around this anger, you have to make the decision to let it go. Even if the other person says, look, just forget it. You still have to decide, I will drop it. So the hard-hearted person has to agree to be melted. But if you put love in front of them over and over again with no demands, then it becomes increasingly difficult for them to resist the melting process. <laughs> it is like this. Say somebody, they're very angry with you. It doesn't make a difference whether they're in the right or in the wrong. And you can say, I understand. I understand why you're very angry. I apologize. If I've caused you any offense, I absolutely apologize. If you keep doing that, their anger just goes out. 
It just dissolves. You say, do you live in a house or an apartment or a tent or something? And you own it, do you? Yeah, all right. Well, when you bought it, let's say you love it, to whatever degree you love it, but what you will do is, over a period of time, you begin to buy things that enhance it. So that's what love does. It transforms. When this young, blushing bride looks up at this hairy monster to which she's about to <laughs> dedicate herself to, right? And she thinks, I hope he will change. It's actually based on an intuitive knowledge that love does transform. The only error is in thinking, I can make him change, which does not work, only produces resistance. But love will transform. If you ask any man, if he's honest and he's been married for a while, he will say that his wife has transformed him. She has civilized him, refined him, and a million other factors. And very quietly, like just folding those towels over and over again, and one day you wake up that it is unfair to continually leave the towels that way. Now that is transformation. Very, very slow transformation, <laughs> but it is transformation. And the one thing that you must never do is you must never give up on anybody. That is the one thing. Never, ever, ever do that. A human being is a remarkable creature, no matter what is manifesting. And again, there's a lovely story from Mother Teresa. Have you ever read any books by Mother Teresa? You know, her own words. They're stunning. This is a lady who lived in a way that you and I know nothing about. For her, everybody was Christ. So Christ wasn't one guy who lived 2,000 years ago. Christ was there in everybody. And there's a story told of one day she's in one of her hospitals and there's an appalling man in the hospital and he's extremely rude and obnoxious and ungrateful. And he's also, even at a physical level, which is not that significant, but anyway, he's filthy and maggot-ridden. So anyway, tenderly and lovingly, she washes him down and cleans him up like this and he's only given out and all that sort of stuff. She cares for him for an hour, two hours, whatever. He's fine now, so she goes to where some of the other nuns are, and she says, I have just met Christ in a most distressing disguise. <laughs> Let's say, if you can only see the hard heart, or maybe things manifesting from a hard heart, you're not really seeing. Have you ever held a baby and it really looked at you? Do you ever get a fright sometimes, because you know... It's looking right into you. Other people say, oh, that's a chartered accountant. Baby doesn't look at and say, oh, that's a chartered accountant. They say, that's something made in the image of God. That's why they can't stop loving it. They see beyond. They see all the way in. And that's what you must do. There's a practice of love in the school of philosophy. If you look and you do not see beauty then look again. And if you do not see beauty the second time, then look again. And keep looking until you see it. Because it's there. It's your looking that's at fault, not the other person. Let's say you do know somebody and they have a very hard heart and it manifests in an appalling way. If you can really connect with that person, 
if you can get behind that to the real essence of the human being, then something may happen. I've told this story before, but in this context it's worth repeating. The lady who ran the School of Philosophy in New York, one of the buildings was in a particularly bad location, and she left the school building late one night to walk to her car to go home. And as she was approaching the car, a Puerto Rican gang surrounded her, grabbed her, and rammed her up against a wall. Now, this lady is about five foot tall and about seven stone. If you sneezed, she'd go back about ten yards. So, very frail, insignificant, physically, lady. Anyway, when they rammed her against the wall, she said, Gentlemen, what do you want with me? That's all she said. And they became her protectors. So every night when she was in the school building, they would wait outside. And when she came out, they would escort her to her car so that nobody ever harmed her. Now what she did was, she didn't see a Puerto Rican gang. She saw latent gentlemen. And that's what's in there. The gold is in there. And if you can make a connection with it, then there's a very good chance it will come out. So if you find iron, look further. Find the gold. It's there in everybody. Absolutely everybody. It's a tragedy that people have gold and they only spend pennies living their lives. So if you can connect with the gold, you'll encourage them to spend their own glory. Is that okay? Yes. One man asked me to consider this question during the refreshment break. He said that he accepted that the world was a manifestation of love, that its source was love, it was sustained by love, and it would return to love. But when you consider all the natural disasters and all the hardship and the grief and the apparent injustice, how can you explain that? If this is only love made manifest, how can you explain all of this? This is just a way of considering it. When you correct a child, you correct a child for its welfare. You correct it so that it might grow so that it might be free of some erroneously imposed limits. And so, correction sometimes can be painful, but it's always educational, and it's never revenge, and it's always for the benefit of the person. And if a mother or a father can correct a child, and the child can see it as painful, it doesn't mean that it's evil or nasty or erroneous. It just means that the child's understanding at that point in time cannot see the goodness in the correcting behavior or the correction. You could look at it this way if you were a believer in God, that God will not allow this creation to fall into chaos. And that if man, through his own intelligence, cannot discover the right way to live, he will clip him across the ear every so often until he does wake up. So what we call injustice and what we call tragedies and all these sort of things is just from our point of view. 
we're not seeing the whole story. And if we could see the whole story, we might see it as intervention to ensure that reason and love prevail in this world. So, that was the answer. I can't see the man. Whoever asked me the question, that was the, there you are. That's the answer. And that's a way to consider it, and it's a useful thing to look at that. If you can accept, love only wishes for the goodness of those that it loves. So if you are a God believer, then it is impossible that the source of love could wish any misery or any harm for anybody or anything. And if you accept the reasoning of that, then if you happen to see misery or harm, then you'll have to question it. You'll have to look again. So, in accountancy terms, there is a thing called uh, double-entry bookkeeping. And with double-entry bookkeeping, both sides of the ledger have to balance. And once a bookkeeper or an accountant accepts that, then when they don't balance, he does not say, here is the exception to the rule. He says, I have made an error. He realizes the error lies here, not that the system is flawed. And it would be a very useful thing if you look at this world and you, all you can see is misery and deprivation and injustice and all these things. It would be, with a certain humility, it would be a good thing to say, well, perhaps I am not seeing correctly. Perhaps there's another viewing point. Anyway. Yes, anybody else? You happy to leave it at that? Full of love. All right, excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming.